Welcome to Pod for the Cause, the official podcast of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights and the Leadership Conference Education Fund, where we take on the critical civil and human rights issues of our day. I'm your host, Kanya Bennett, coming to you from Washington, D.C. And to start off this and every show, let me shout out the Pod Squad, who will be sharing their time, talent, and take on the challenges and opportunities before us as we work to save our democracy. On today's episode of Pod for the Cause, we are joined by two impressive tech experts and strategists. Joe Miller, founder, president, and CEO of the Washington Center for Technology Policy Inclusion, aka Washington Tech, which fights for a safe and trustworthy internet and advocates for diversity and inclusion in technology policymaking. Joe is also the host of Tech Policy, a podcast that keeps us informed about the latest trends in privacy, free speech, and media law and policy. Joe, welcome to Pod for the Cause. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, and it's great to be here. Kanya, thank you. We also welcome our very own David Toomey, our Voting Rights and Technology Fellow here at the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. Dave is an advocate, attorney, and Capitol Hill alumnus with a strong focus on political strategy, technology, disinformation, and voting rights. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, great to be here, Kanye. Thanks for inviting me. Today, we will be talking about online misinformation and disinformation. So we have just the right folks for this conversation. Before we get started, let me offer some background to get us all on the same page for this important and timely conversation. First, let me define misinformation and disinformation. Misinformation is defined as incorrect or misleading information. We are talking about unintentional mistakes, such as inaccurate dates, statistics, or photo captions. Disinformation is false information deliberately spread in order to influence or mislead public opinion or obscure the truth. Here we are talking about intentionally created conspiracy theories or rumors. We can look to the recent 2022 midterm elections for examples of misinformation and disinformation. We saw the proliferation of disinformation around voting procedures and policies, including false information about the use and security of mail-in ballots, drop boxes, and ballot collection. We also saw preemptive false claims of fraud spread before the elections and election workers harassed online. The misinformation and disinformation we saw during the midterms builds upon the big lie, the false narrative that the 2020 presidential election was stolen from former President Trump, which is now embedded in our political discourse. In fact, 60% of Americans had an election denier on their midterm ballot this November and more than 100 Republican primary winners support false voter fraud claims. According to the New York Times, more than 200 Republicans who either entertained or embraced 2020 election lies won their races, including more than 180 in the House and at least a dozen in the Senate. Recent research finds that a small group of users is responsible for a large portion of the disinformation that spreads about voting and elections. But with misinformation and disinformation so easily spread through social media, all it takes is a couple of reposts and retweets to put these falsehoods in motion. We know misinformation and disinformation are eroding the public's confidence in our democracy. So let's talk about how we course correct and move forward. So let's start with what we saw during the 2022 midterm elections in terms of misinformation and disinformation. 
Joe, let's start with you. What was out there and what impact did it have on voting and election outcomes? So thanks, uh, Kanye, for the, the primer up front, because I think a lot of folks tend to get confused if they're not working in D.C. about the difference between misinformation and disinformation. But what we saw was a campaign during the period of time leading up to the 2022 election, during which uh, Latinos in particular were targeted with false and misleading information. So this problem has been going on for a while, ever since the beginning of democracy. And it's just that the internet kind of amplifies it. Fortunately, we didn't see outcomes anywhere near what we feared in November, but this continues to be a problem, whether we're talking about here in the US or we're talking abroad and, and Russian propaganda happening in and around places like Ukraine, you see a conservative Hindu majority of India, spreading misinformation and disinformation to Indians and promoting discrimination against Muslims and other religious groups within India. We continue to see these things happen. Dave, let's have you respond to this question as well. What misinformation and disinformation did you see in the 2022 midterms and what impact did it have? Yeah, thanks, Kanye. So I, I think Joe gave a good you know, tee that up pretty well about some of the issues we saw in this election. You know, over the course of this election cycle and going even back to 2020, a lot of the themes that come up about voting disinformation have been recirculated and recycled. So we, we keep seeing the same things coming up over and over. False claims about how mail-in ballots work. False claims that, you know, ballot drop boxes are not secure. There's a lot of preemptive claims of fraud. So you have candidates who are throwing shade on the election before it even happens, saying there's going to be fraud. This year, we saw an increased harassment of election officials online. Election officials are the ones who count the votes. They do the canvassing. You know, they're nonpartisan. But you saw a lot of harassment about the work they were doing even before the election started. Um, some of this was kind of starting in the primaries, then it started building up as the election got closer. So we see a lot of the same things happening over and over. And these are narratives that, you know, get spread by certain actors. You know, kind of as you pointed out, there's a relatively small number of super sprays, they call them, who originate a lot of this content and then it just spreads virally. And we know who some of these actors are. So that's the kind of things we've seen over and over. And we saw it building up the election this year. So... You talked a little bit, Joe, about, right, this distinction between misinformation and disinformation. And so can you talk about why it's important to make that distinction for our listeners to understand what the differences are? And can you talk a little bit about the potential threats and harms of each of them? So I think with disinformation, there's a volitional aspect to it. And I think with disinformation, it can sometimes be harder to tell. But it depends on, you know, the receiver's level of digital literacy and ability to evaluate the information that they're seeing. Misinformation, it may just be a piece of information that someone wasn't aware of before, that they're not really sure if it's true or false. They've just never really heard it before. And so they're not really sure whether they should be sharing it. But then, of course, there's misinformation that if the receiver knows that it's misinformation, Hopefully that person will intervene and call it out for what it is or report it to the platform, which brings us to content moderation. That's a different issue we'll get into, I suppose, later. It's important because of the counter narratives that people of color in particular should be able to weigh in on. And that was one of the beauties of Black Twitter is that we were able to prevent disinformation by the police 
from happening before it even happened because we were videotaping the evidence of George Floyd while it was happening. So there was no possibility for the police to sort of refute that in any credible way. All of the information was right there. So I don't necessarily think disinformation or misinformation that one is more important to spot than the other. But I think to the extent that folks are sort of aware of what's happening and have the ability to evaluate the information that they're seeing online, that folks who know that it's misinformation or folks who know it's propaganda or disinformation, that they're able to provide their own perspective and their own sort of counter narrative and share the factual basis that whether it's a study or, or research that kind of refutes what the other person is saying. So the Washington Center for Technology Policy Inclusion, Washington Tech, which is our brand name, our mission is to fight for a safe and informed internet by teaching technology law and policy to everyone who wants to shape it. So we envision a world where we have diverse folks from any number of persuasions, any number of uh, ability participating in tech policy debates. And we do that with webinars. We have an online safety webinar that folks can find on our website. We also have a checklist for parents and caregivers who want to take immediate action to protect their kids online. Find that at protectyourkids.online. And then we also have our podcast, which you can find at techpolicypodcast.org. And there you can find links to whichever platform you prefer for listening to podcasts. You talked a little bit about the communities that are most impacted by misinformation and disinformation. And so, Dave, let me ask you who misinformation and disinformation targets. I think about this election season, perhaps it's folks with a certain level of sophistication and when it comes to accessing technology. And perhaps it's disproportionately people of color who are impacted. I think about my dad who called me up and said, hey, I read on Facebook that I have until Friday to vote. And I was like, oh, no, dad, they got you. This is no, that is not <laughs> whether it was misinformation or disinformation. That is not right. And fortunately, I was able to help set the record straight. But Dave, talk to us about the folks who have really been targeted here, especially in this voting context for these misinformation or disinformation campaigns. Yeah, so, you know, voter suppression, intimidation, disinformation is not really a new problem, especially towards targeted populations, right? Communities of color, disadvantaged folks, disadvantaged communities. But social media has created like new opportunities and threats in context of this, the speed of transmission, the low cost that's involved in spreading it. It's much different than kind of what was done pre-internet and pre-social media. And the problem is that this kind of activity builds and amplifies division and inequality, you know, racism, anti-Semitism, et cetera. And it contributes to the radicalization of what's being spread. You know, it strokes fears of multiracial democracy, that kind of thing. So we do see a lot of disinformation is targeted towards communities of color and other disadvantaged communities because they're trying to create division and trying to either discourage them from voting or feeding them information about false information on how voting works and how it affects them. Those are problems we continue to see. We've seen this in their voter suppression efforts going back decades, but social media has made this worse. So we're talking about these different platforms that misinformation, disinformation gets spread on. I'm thinking about 
how we are reporting this information and sort of those platforms, what their responsibility is to be responsive to the disinformation, misinformation that its users are flagging. Let's one talk about sort of the responsibility of the social media user, what they should be doing to report disinformation when they see it. So what should they be doing? How should they be responding to it? Why is it important that they react here? For many years, women and people of color and other underrepresented groups, we didn't have access to media platforms, whether it was newspapers, where we simply didn't have the capital to invest in newspapers or when anti-abolitionists would burn down or attack like uh, William Lloyd Garrison when they were preparing to give speeches or forced Ida V. Wells into financial ruin. So there were lots and lots of barriers to entry that were there that were, first of all, unregulated, but, you know, kept people of color out of newspapers for many, many years. And we move into electronic media and again, you know, under Jim Crow, we're prevented from owning radio stations. We see a, an MCC. But the progress of the civil rights movement, of course, was very short-lived. You know, after the Kerner Commission report, there were efforts to diversify media. And then the Supreme Court stepped in and basically put an end to that with the strict scrutiny standard. But today, policies like net neutrality have opened the door for us to have the ability to provide our counter-narratives and, and provide context for some of the information that they know is false or harmful. And so I think it's every person's responsibility to, you know, weigh in when they see that. I'm constantly reminded of, uh, you know, the, the Kitty Genovese case in Queens many years ago, where there was a woman, Kitty Genovese, being attacked. And there were folks living in the buildings surrounding where the attack took place, and no one called the police. Aside from what folks can do individually, there's a collective issue here that we've been trying to deal with. In the Kitty Genovese case, they set up a 911 emergency line. And I'm not so sure that not having that for the internet, that seems like some sort of a framework or some sort of a discussion should be had around creating a similar system for the internet. Thanks, Joe. And I appreciate that background, that history in terms of sort of how community collectively showed up in the civil rights movement. And so lots of the ownership of the fight was on us. And so, Dave, let me ask you, before I ask sort of what these platforms should be doing, what the federal government should be doing, what the responsibility is there, what can we do collectively within community, individually, to sort of set these records straight? I gave the example of my dad and, you know, I was able to correct him, but now maybe I should have <laughs> reached out to Facebook. Perhaps I should have done more because certainly that message didn't only reach my father. It reached millions of other people. And so what is the responsibility of us, of users, to make sure that we're setting the record straight? One thing we try to do, our organization, as well as other organizations who are in the election protection world, there's been a lot of monitoring done by organizations like ours and others who keep track of the mis- and disinformation that's spreading online. And we've set up tools where folks in that network can report into organizations so it can be compiled and analyzed, and then we can get back to the platforms in sort of a collective effort. I mean, these are the trends and narratives and posts we're seeing, and you need to fix it, and you need to address it because it violates your own rules about disinformation. So making them set up where the onus isn't just on the individual user. I mean, they can send something to Facebook or Twitter 
and Twitter can look at it, but whether they act on it or not is another question. We've set up some networks and collective efforts where I think we can utilize the volume and the strength of the community to get these issues in front of Facebook and Twitter and other platforms. There are a lot of efforts to put the onus on, in the context of child privacy, for example, to put the onus on the parents to not give them access to the devices in the first place as a way to sort of shift responsibility away from the companies themselves to the parents and the users. But that's obviously not enough. Companies have much more insight into what's false and what's not. And they have a responsibility. They have a duty of care, frankly, to prevent this types of speech that the First Amendment was never intended to protect. Kanye, you might be getting into this next, but the onus on this really is on the companies. They run the platforms. They set them up. They have rules, and we'll get into this a little bit, they have rules against disinformation. So it's their responsibility to address it when they're a problem. And I think certain times they try to put the onus on the users, but the onus is really on them. They are running the platforms and they have the engineers and the know-how about how to address these issues. That's right. And they supposedly have policy people in place. So hopefully they have policy people other than lobbyists uh, to participate in discussions that are being had on content moderation teams. Let's turn to that. So yes, you're absolutely right. The companies producing these products have a responsibility to keep their forums, their users safe from harm. And certainly misinformation, disinformation, those things fall into those categories of harm. So talk to us a little bit about the legal guidelines, the legal requirements that these social media platforms have with respect to stopping the spread of misinformation and disinformation. Joe, let me go to you and have you weigh in. Well, again, I mean, it goes back to the common law, frankly, and, you know, looking back to see what the common law and First Amendment in particular were intended to protect. And, you know, no one envisioned protecting someone who screams fire in a crowded theater is the classic example. And to, you know, kind of try to defy history and treat the internet as if human nature has changed or as though civility and the concept of civility has changed is just silly and really sort of ahistorical. In the U.S., we don't have specific restrictions. We don't have the same restrictions on commercial speech commercial prior restraints and censorship that we have applying to state actors that are interfering with the First Amendment. And so we have commercial enterprises like Masterpiece Cake Shop, where the bakers were discriminating against a same-sex marriage, folks who wanted to buy a birthday cake, and then the Masterpiece Cake Shop owners refused. They said it was against their religion, and the Supreme Court protected the Masterpiece Cake Shop's right to not make a cake based on their religious beliefs. And so we see the same thing happening on private platforms like Twitter, and Facebook, where they have much more leeway to moderate content. And so with the duty of care, they need to use that power to exercise their privilege to uh, meet that duty of care and protect users and the public from false information that's harmful that the First Amendment never envisioned. Dave, do you have anything to add in terms of the responsibilities of these companies, these entities that are owning these platforms that are in our everyday lives? In the voting and elections context, most of the major platforms have rules in place to varying degrees that basically say you can't put disinformation up about an election on their platform. Some go further than others in what you can put up and what you can't. 
Some, for example, say you can't put anything again about the big lies. Some are not that specific, but they do all to some degree. And part of that is because groups like ours have pushed them to do so and improve them. The problem is they don't consistently enforce it towards the users that are putting it on. They're not consistent about it. They don't enforce it regularly. The enforcement is erratic. And there seems to be no rhyme or reason in terms of when they decide they want to do it and when they don't. And in general, this is a little bit of a broad generalization, but the higher the profile of the user, the less they do it, especially politicians. What we've been saying to the platforms regularly is you obviously feel strongly enough about this that you've set up rules saying you can't put this stuff on your platform and yet you don't take it down or you don't try to limit the spread of it or various tools they can do to, to slow the spread of it or not have it be as prominent on their feeds. That's a real problem. And that's something we've really pushed aggressively in the platforms that if you thought hard enough to put these rules up, why aren't you enforcing them when you have them in place? I'm also thinking about the resources that these companies have to monitor their platforms and ensure the safety, ensure the response to misinformation and disinformation and how certainly that's become tougher as we see. I'm thinking, look, Twitter. Twitter is the elephant in the room, right? And we know that there have been significant changes to how that platform is run, how it's operated, and we suspect that more is to come with respect to Twitter. And so with that company having recently fired staff that focused on human rights and accessibility and AI ethics and curating, what does this mean for the platform? What does this mean for how those who have been historically impacted by misinformation and disinformation will be able to engage on the platform and be protected? So Dave, what do you think about all this? From what we can tell, Twitter's like over at least half their workforce from what we've heard. Included in that, from what we understand, is the head of trust and safety is no longer there. He either was laid off or left. They also have gotten rid or have had resignations of folks who are handling compliance and various data security issues. And Elon Musk has been publicly kind of throwing shade on doing content moderation when needed. I think the concern we have with this now is what does Twitter look like going forward? Twitter's policies on voter disinformation, as they're written down, do cover a fair amount of ground in terms of what you can put up and what you can't and what they're going to allow up there. Their enforcement, like the others, has not been great. Now we don't know what it's going to be like at all, especially if the folks who are handling content moderation and trust and safety are not there or are greatly diminished. What it looks like is anyone's guess, but the early returns on this are not good, especially given Elon Musk's rhetoric about how he views these issues. It can be a real problem, and it could very adversely affect content moderation and in touch of false information that could get spread rapidly through that platform. And then we also have platforms concerned about liability in places like Texas and Florida that have enacted statutes that would limit content moderation platforms' ability to censor speech based on quote-unquote viewpoint diversity. And the entire viewpoint diversity concept originated in terms of communications regulation in the context of the FCC rewarding licenses and how to determine how they're rewarding licenses to diverse owners. And the way this is fought out is that you have a lot of folks trying to define viewpoint diversity as something that doesn't include a person's race and ethnicity. And of course, that's absurd. And so we've seen a similar attempt to kind of import that debate into conservatives saying that these platforms are discriminating against their political, quote unquote, viewpoints 
But, you know, it's the Republican Party and, and conservatives are, even though the numbers are changing, uh, but they're still overwhelmingly a predominantly white party. And you have Republican uh, legislators passing laws claiming that their viewpoint diversity is being infringed upon. But the First Amendment, you know, it also protects the receivers of information. And so there's this conflict that the Supreme Court's going to have to decide between different opinions by the courts of appeals that have taken up Florida and the Texas cases to determine how they're going to address these speech issues and the extent to which the same rationale that they applied in the Masterpiece Cake Shop should apply to a content moderation platforms. Along those lines... Where we have seen large creators have their platforms removed on these social media channels because they've amplified hate speech or because they have, you know, done something else harmful in this misinformation or disinformation context. And as you too describe it, right, there is such resistance to wanting to moderate content. Is it that we're relying on public opinion, right, public outcry to really get companies to do what it is they are supposed to do? And then I guess I bring it back to us, right? We've had this back and forth around sort of who bears responsibility here in terms of the regulation of these platforms. Does that bring it back to us to then continue to make noise around the content that we're seeing on these platforms? Joe, I see you nodding. Do you want to react to that? And then Dave, offer your response as well. Absolutely. And you know, I just want to point out that the pushback against content moderation is, number one, ahistorical. And number two, it's either misinformation or disinformation in and of itself. Because, you know, like I've said, for the free speech debate, the First Amendment debate, where you have a Supreme Court that likes to go back to the 14th century when it analyzes cases. But even going back prior to when the Constitution was enacted, there was never any idea that people should just say whatever they want without consequences. And so I think that's a key thing to point out in this debate about, you know, what we need to do, because it's silly. These arguments are silly. They don't have any basis in anything other than these political motivations as the demographics change and kind of this pressure to deal with their own disinformation and misinformation that people in leadership are consuming, like the replacement theory that they are kind of keeping them up at night. But the conversation that folks really, I think, maybe instead of playing whack-a-mole when they see misinformation or disinformation is to say, whenever they see someone arguing that a platform that takes down hate speech, that they're infringing their free speech, it's like, you know, we need more people saying that, no, the First Amendment was never intended that way. And human nature has not changed at all very much. I can't think of a way that it's changed other than what's happened with the internet. But the argument that their free speech is being violated under the constitution that they claim to revere so much is just, there's no basis in any of our constitutional history for that assessment. Building a little bit on what Joe said, I mean, to the extent when Facebook and Twitter and others have taken action against actors who are spreading disinformation about voting and hate speech, they've been accused of censoring them, right? So you hear that a lot from particularly the right wing, you know, saying there's censorship going on. As Joe said, that's a false reading of the First Amendment. I went to law school, but I'm not a First Amendment expert, but the First Amendment doesn't apply to a private company. So that's kind of a false argument to begin with. And to the extent that the platforms are taking action against actors that are violating their rules, they're allowed to do that. As I said earlier, they've set up rules in their platforms. They're a private company. They can set up a platform the way they want. And if they don't want voting disinformation on the platform, they can say they don't want it and they can moderate it. To the extent that folks are violating their rules on that, 
And to the extent that platforms are taking action, that's okay. That's not censorship. That's breaking the rules they've been set up on the platform. So that's one thing. The other thing, I think in terms of the, how the ecosystem is kind of viewing all this, you know, remember platforms are there to make money, right? And the way they make money is getting more eyeballs to their screens. And, you know, limiting content that can be controversial or is false is not something they always want because they want more eyeballs on the screens. And that gets more advertising and drives up stock prices. The whole business model, the way these platforms are set up kind of leads to this kind of behavior. So I think that's what drives that, you know, to the extent they have put some policies in place that deal with hate speech, voting, other issues. There are folks there who want to do a content moderation. They know that if they don't have some parameters on it, it could just be a total free fall that we could see happening with Twitter eventually. So that's not necessarily good for business either. So I think that's really what kind of makes their decisions in the end. And I do think some ability from folks like us to impress on them the kind of the civil rights aspect of this is still important to bring up. And I do think there's some listening going on there, but I think the leadership in the end, you know, the business model is, is set up in a way to make money and get more eyeballs on the screens. I think you both are right. So again, it falls upon us as consumers to really push how we want these platforms to show up. Of course, we are going to have users who disagree with perhaps some of the, the perspectives that have been shared in today's conversation. And so, you know, I asked this question, I've heard so many complaints about really all of the mediums, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Twitter, but yet this is how we are communicating. And folks will complain about Facebook and an hour later, they're back posting something. They'll complain about Twitter and not even a minute later, they're tweeting out something, reacting to something. So as consumers, if we do not like the way these companies are showing up, what should we be doing? Obviously, we're making noise, public opinion, hopefully will shift, you know, some of these companies' practices. But should we be looking for another platform? Should we be looking at companies that have agreed to run their platforms in manners that are more consistent with the ways in which we want to show up? And if we do that, if we go to these other channels, is there harm in us just essentially then becoming even more, especially in this very sort of partisan and divided country in which world in which we find ourselves in, will we then find ourselves really only talking to each other and becoming even further divided? So Joe, what do you think about pursuing other channels? What is our response when we don't like these platforms doing what they've been doing? You know, it's up to each individual what they need to do, but I really think we need more of our own platforms. That's always been the issue. And so you, know, you see a lot of venture capitalists who are supporting women of people of color enterprises, particularly media enterprises, although that's more difficult to fund. We really do need our own platforms and we need more local media that would have a strong online presence, but also reach communities that don't have access to the internet. So I think the individual response you know, really depends on each person and their circumstances. But in terms of a collective response, I think pretty clear that we need more local media. Dave, what do you think about this? Should we be taking our business elsewhere? Do we have a responsibility to stick around? And as some of my colleagues push us, right, we need to be that civil rights voice on Twitter. We need to have a civil rights Twitter. Folks need to know that we are there and that what they're receiving is not monolithic. What do you think, Dave? This is a tough question, right? Because as you said, Kanye, people get mad at Twitter and they go back on it an hour later because not everything on social media platforms is bad. 
right? I mean, there are entities and people and subjects you can connect with and you can learn more, you know, for a lot of work issues, you know, I deal with at work and other things. I follow people on Twitter that help me with information to understand what's out there on, on things that I follow, right? So it's not all pernicious and bad, but, you know, to Joe's point, I think the consumer has to make a decision about what he or she, you know, wants to look at and take advantage of and be part of. One thing we've done, you know, as a civil rights organization is we've tried to stay engaged with the platforms because we think we've been very public with them about things we'd like them to change and that kind of thing. I think as long as they're still there and they're the dominant, you know, social media entities, we want to try to make adjustments that can make it a more, you know, hospitable place and can get true information about these key issues or diminish the false information that we're seeing about voting and things like that. So we don't think we can just, you know, bag it and turn away from them. But I think in terms of individuals, you know, if there are other outlets that pop up that are useful, as Joe said, there has to be money behind that. And there has to be, you know, some interest in doing that. I think that's fine if people want to try all alternatives. So, Joe, you touched on this a little bit. You talked about the need for increased diversity and in, in local media ownership. And so, of course, we should be pushing that. But should we alongside that also be steering people sort of back to traditional news channels for our news consumption? Should we be suggesting to folks that, hey, really, social media is where you go into play. But if you want real news, real facts, let's turn into our local channels, which ideally are going to to have diversity of ownership and afford greater protection against misinformation and disinformation? That raises a number of issues. One that comes to mind is the business structure. If the local media platform is a nonprofit, then they you know, have more of a responsibility to kind of not have that profit motive. They'll still need to grow an audience, but they won't have the profit motive. If the local station is commercially owned, then they have a profit motive and they'll naturally be trying to do things to grow their audiences. And so when you look at what should be happening, that also needs to be determined on a local level. If we had a new public media network, for example, like a new NPR, we they revised the Public Broadcasting Act and we were to finally rescue Pacifica, whose stations are disproportionately focused on people of color. And lo and behold, they're usually cash strapped that it would be up to, you know, each of those stations in their local community to know what their local community's needs are. And fortunately or unfortunately, they would need to be competing against some of those larger news channels. And it would be up to the editors and the programmers to fight for that market share. Unfortunately, in a society that's dominated by capitalism, I think that's ultimately what it's going to have to come to is, to Dave's point earlier, is fighting for these eyeballs. And for each local media outlet, they're going to have to make the case for why folks should be viewing their platform more often than traditional news outlets, which are not owned by us as majority shareholders and have never been hospitable overall to people of color who want to work there and women of people of color want to buy broadcast stations. So I hope that answers the question. You know, I mean, there's some guidance that civil rights organizations can provide right? By convening folks, you know, regularly from these local stations that hopefully will be created or local platforms, whatever they are, to regularly convene those folks so they can kind of work towards a common solution as to what the overall guidelines and community standards, for lack of a better term, should be, and then let them take that guidance to their local communities and, and program their platforms in a way that speaks to the needs of their consumers uh, locally. 
Thanks, Joe. And let's end on that note, the point that you made around work of civil rights organizations to sort of convene and to educate. And I want you both to offer a plug for ways in which people can be better informed, ways in which people can learn about how they should be responding to misinformation, disinformation, how they can better show up on these social media platforms. So Dave, talk a little bit about sort of how folks can plug in. I know you mentioned some of the work that our organization, the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights is doing. Who else should folks be going to to get information on (laughs) misinformation, disinformation? Yeah, well, there's a lot of outlets out there, you know, kind of in the civil rights and extended world that are working on this. We've done a lot of advocacy on a lot of these issues. And you can see that on our website. If you go, you can see some of the letters we've written to Congress where we've outlined some of the key concerns we have about content moderation, about election disinformation. You know, one of the partners I work a lot with is Common Cause. Common Cause has been very effective on these issues. They do a lot of analyzing and monitoring disinformation, you know, that I've worked on with them and, and others have as well. And they have a lot of advocacy as well. I work on a lot of advocacy with Common Cause and and the Lawyers Committee is another one that we work with, you know, very closely on these issues. And Center for American Progress is another. There's several organizations in our coalition that are very focused on these issues. So I I think that those are good places to start in terms of the kind of civil rights and related issues, the components of the things that we advocate on. And Joe, please offer your thoughts on where folks should be plugging in. And you also have a podcast. Folks should be going to you to stay up to date on the latest in terms of all of these media and tech issues, and especially as it pertains to disinformation and misinformation. Sure. So we've been running our podcast since 2015. It's called Tech Policy Leaders, and you can find it uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. I echo everything that Dave has just said. We also need to think about you know, what the different motivations are based on different demographics. So one of the things is that shareholders of these companies want these companies to be more socially responsible. So they're aware of the risks of having, you know, that kind of information proliferate on these platforms. And so to the extent that anyone listening now is a shareholder or an investor in any of these companies, pursue means by your position as a shareholder to push back on these things, whether it involves protesting to the board of directors directly or, you know, initiating some sort of a shareholder action. That's also a a huge component of this is to demonetize this idea that free speech was ever intended to be a thing where people just say whatever and send people to storm the Capitol. We could continue talking, but let me bring this to a close. And you've certainly given listeners some work to do, and I hope that folks will plug in. So again, Dave Toomey, Joe Miller, thank you so much for joining us today. We truly appreciate your time, and we're so glad to have your voices here today on Pod for the Cause. Great work. Yeah, thanks very much, Kanye. really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us today on Pod for the Cause, the official podcast of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights and the Leadership Conference Education Fund. As always, please report disinformation to reportdisinfo.org. Again, that's reportdisinfo.org. For more information about the Leadership Conference, please visit civilrights.org. Hit us up on Instagram and Twitter at civilrights.org. You can text us, text civil rights, that's two words, civil rights to 52199 to keep up with our latest updates. Be sure to subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast app and leave a five-star review. 
Thanks to our executive producer, Evan Hartung, and our production team, Graham Bashai, Benu Aman, Dina Craig, and Shin Inoue. And that's it from me, your host, Kanya Bennett. Until next time, let's keep fighting for an America as good as its ideals.